0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Dr. Herbert Henry Ehrenstein of Philadelphia. Dr. Ehrenstein has many Bible study books on the market and has co-authored and edited many of the Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse books. He was the Barnhouse Bible teacher for continuing Bible studies in New York City, Boston, and many other locations. Today's message is Deliver Us From Temptation. This will be the final study of the so-called lord's prayer as found in the sixth chapter of matthew's gospel and some of you may wonder as i say the final study how this can be because if you're using a king james version particularly you'll notice there's still another sentence after the one we're talking about tonight which says for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen if you're using any of the modern contemporary translations almost any one of them i think you'll discover that that last benediction is missing or it may be set in a footnote at the bottom of the page in small type, or if it is printed in the text itself, you might find a footnote telling you that it is not found in the best manuscripts. The reason for this is that it is not in the oldest text, it is not in the oldest manuscripts, that last phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And it probably was added somewhere along the line by some later scribal editor. And I'll say something about that in just a few moments. But I'd like to share a story with you in connection with this. When I was a a teenager, I had a friend who was a staunch Roman Catholic. We argued vehemently over our respective faiths, each of us very much devoted to his own particular faith. And most of the arguments took place as we walked our dogs in the evening after supper. We'd go out for a walk in the community, taking our dogs with us, and it was always amusing as we argued, and and I say argue, I mean argue. We really let loose with some of the arguments on these things. Well, Peter could not let his dog off the leash because he had never trained him well, and the dog would simply scoot off and you'd never get him back again, and so he kept him on the leash. Whereas I had trained my dog to a certain extent to stay nearby. If I hollered loud enough, he would stay near, and so I could remove the leash and let him run rather freely. Well, we would argue, and as we argued walking along, Peter would get very excited and he would start to wave his arms, completely forgetting that the dog was attached to one of those arms by the leash. Now, this was a small dog, and uh, in the excitement of our arguments, Rex would frequently sail through the air with the greatest (laughs) of ease on a theological point as we were talking together, you see. And I, I remember how I would tell Peter that his Bible was wrong, very definitely wrong, because it was incomplete. And uh, he would drag this, by the way, this huge Catholic Bible with him. In those days, they didn't have relatively small ones like they do today. This was an enormous thing, almost like one of these big dictionaries that you see. And he would drag this on our walks. That plus the dog was really a feat in itself. Well, anyway, I would tell him that his Bible was wrong and it was incomplete because it left out this last part of verse 13. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And I thought I had him there, absolutely so, until one day. He showed up with an American Standard version of the Bible. American Standard version is one that came out roughly, I think, about 1901, and it was one that I accepted along with the King James version of those days. And he showed up with this. Where he got it, I haven't the faintest idea. But with a note of triumph in his voice, he pointed to Matthew 6:13 and he said, "See there, it's missing." And I looked, and sure enough, "Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory." Were not there. Those words were not there there was a footnote that explained its absence from the best manuscripts. And believe me, that took the theological wind out of my biblical sails when I had that confronting me. Well, the Catholic Bible, of course, has never included this at all in any of its various editions. It has always been left out, and our Catholic friends, as you know, when they recite the Lord's Prayer, stop at the end of what we have in most of the modern texts today, verse 13, and they simply do not have that last benedictory part. It would seem that this doxology, benediction, call it what you will, was added later, perhaps as a marginal note. Some think it was by some scribe who, reading over the text, sort of realized that it ended too abruptly, and that there it stopped in the middle, Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Just stopping there, there's nothing, it doesn't seem to be an end, just saying amen at the end of that seems incomplete. And so it is assumed that some scribe perhaps wrote in the margin of the Bible that he had, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that later, subsequently, as people were making copies, because all copies were made by hand, as you know, in ancient times, somebody saw the marginal note and thought that maybe it was a verse that was left out, simply copied it in, and this became a part of the text somewhere along the line. This has happened before, and so it is assumed that's what took place here as well. But the prayer really ends with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's why I say this is the last of the so-called Lord's Prayer. Now, keep in mind, as I told you before, that this prayer was not intended to be prayed as it is. In other words, Jesus didn't give us these words and simply say, now repeat the words after me. Rather, this was a model, as I have suggested to you, it was a guide to help us to formulate our prayers by using the pattern that Jesus had given at this point. Well, tonight we come to the final two petitions, which in reality are only one. Because if you look at them carefully, you'll find that you're given the negative aspect, first of all, do not lead us into temptation. And then the flip side gives us the positive aspect, which is deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. It could be either one of these, depending upon whatever the translator cares to render it. This request is very practical. And I think I hardly have to tell you this because surely every one of us realizes that temptation is faced by everybody almost every day in many different ways all the way through life. There is hardly a day goes by but that every one of us is tempted at some way, some point, to do something that may be wrong. Temptation is natural. Let's put it very simply, it's a natural factor and it is a valuable part of life in spite of what we are accustomed to thinking. Different temptations obviously affect different people in different ways. By that I mean obviously something that may tempt you tremendously, may be a great temptation to you, may not bother me a bit and vice versa. Something that bothers me may not bother you one iota. And so it depends on the individual whether the temptation affects him or her or not. But certainly contrary to what most people think, temptations can serve a valid purpose, and I think they do, whether we realize that or not. That is. We might tend to think that everything about temptation is wrong. We've been accustomed to saying that. Ooh, you're being tempted. That must be wrong. Not necessarily at all. It was William Hickling Prescott, 19th century American historian, who was left almost blind as a result of an accident he had, once said this, Where there is no temptation, there can be little claim to virtue. Where there is no temptation, there can be little claim to virtue. Now, if you think that through for a moment, what this basically means is that if you have never been put to the test, you really don't know how strong you are. That's what he's saying. If you have never really been tempted, you don't know how strong you are. If I may be permitted another personal illustration, when I was a small boy, I was very rough on toys, and in fact, uh, the youthful destructive impulse was given to me in great abundance. Some people may have had it left out of them. I had a double measure of it. New toys had a lifespan in our home about a week, I think it was, before they finally gave up the ghost. And I remember on one occasion, my father took me to a store to buy a new toy. I don't remember how old I was at the time, but I, he had me by the hand. We went into the place and the salesman assured my father that this particular toy, whatever it was, simply could not be broken. Well, obviously that's the sort of thing my father was looking for. And he told the salesman, he said, uh, I have little Mr. Destruction himself by the hand right here, and he said he can break anything. And the salesman said something which at the moment I don't recall having heard, but I think my father told me afterwards, the salesman said, well, sir, we have never known this toy to be broken. My father said, just give him a chance. And uh, he bought the toy and we took it home. Two weeks later, my father met the salesman again and told him that the toy had been put to the Herb Ehrenstein test and it had survived. It was something that must have been strong enough for me not to be able to break it. But you know, I rather suspect the salesman had a new sales pitch after that. He must have said, uh, "This this new toy has proved itself, it is indestructible. And when you stop to think about it, spiritually you can apply that to yourself, and I can apply it to myself. Because temptations not only exist, in order to demonstrate our strength. That's part of it. I think that's part of the reason why temptations come to us, to let us see that we are strong enough in the Lord to stand up against this, that, or whatever other temptation it may be. But also, they tend to develop us. A temptation can mature a person, can develop a person. Francois Fenelon, the 18th century French archbishop, once said, temptations are like files which rub off much of the rust of our self-confidence. And there's a lot to that. Temptations can take you down a peg. Temptations can make you realize how weak you really are. And I I can't help but think that God allows many of the temptations of life to come to us to simply make us realize that we need to become more humble, that we're getting just a little bit too big for ourselves and that we're of no real use to the Lord simply because we are too big for ourselves and we think too much of ourselves. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls, the way the Apostle Paul put it. You probably remember the story of the Apostle Peter, and Eric Logan mentioned it a little bit earlier this evening. In fact, I thought he was stealing my fire for a while in what he was saying. But the Apostle Peter was constantly afflicted with foot-in-mouth disease. That is to say, he was repeatedly opening mouth and inserting foot. And he was always getting himself into trouble because he was saying what he never thought through before he said it. On one occasion, you remember, Jesus told the disciples that they were all going to abandon him. This is the story that Eric told a few moments ago. Jesus flatly said that all of you will forsake me and flee. No question about it, that's what he said. And I can't help but think that Peter, at that point, put on his bravado mask, and he said, well, now, Lord, I realize that some of these uh, softies are going to run like scared rabbits when the chips are down, when things are real rough that they're not even going to stick around one minute. But Lord, you know me. After all, when things get rough, I'll stick with you right to the very end. And then you remember what happened. The next picture we see of the Apostle Peter in this connection, he's standing in the courtyard of the Praetorium. He's warming his hands at the fire of the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not far away, up on the sort of a balcony, is the Lord himself undergoing interrogation. And Peter's down there in the courtyard there, supposedly watching, staying with the Lord, supposedly fulfilling what he thought he was going to do. I'll stick with you through thick and thin. And suddenly somebody pointed at him across the flames of the fire and said, hey, that's one of the disciples of this fellow Jesus. And immediately Peter whipped out his pocket Bible and put his right hand on it and said, I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help me God. I don't even know this, Uh, what did you say his name was, Jesus. You see, he was denying the very person that he claimed to believe in. And just at that moment, the scripture says, Jesus on the balcony turned around, looked down, with a very sad look at the apostle Peter standing there warming his hands by the fire. And you are immediately made aware that it was a grand fiasco, that it was a cataclysmic failure that Peter had turned out to be, in spite of all of his boasting and his bragging. But wait a minute. You remember the result of that temptation? Remember the outcome of it? Remember what happened as a result of what happened there? Peter went out and wept bitterly, we're told. And for days he was miserable. In fact, he even decided to leave the ministry and return to the fishing trade. As you find him up at the Sea of Galilee with a group of the other other disciples, he was trying to entice them to leave with him. And he said, I'm going to go back to fishing. And they said, okay, we'll go with you. And they all went out fishing when they should have been fishing for men, as the Bible clearly says. And... uh, Then suddenly on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, there was Jesus. And when Peter came to meet with him, they had a knockdown, dragout drag-out session together. And in that confrontation, Jesus said, Peter, do you really love me? Peter, think it through now. You've said so much before. You've always been saying how much you were going to do for me, but do you really love me? And I mean, really, if so, then do what I sent you to do, and that is feed my sheep. And out of that session came a new Peter who emerged from that sizzling frying pan, and he was never the same again. And you find a different person. What I'm trying to say is you see how God used a temptation to make Peter a stronger Christian, a stronger man. He came out of that temptation at which he had failed miserably, and he came out a different person, because he really didn't fail in the long run. And that's the point I'm trying to make. John Bunyan, the author of the Pilgrim's Progress, said, temptation provokes us to look up to God. And it does. Because when you have your back to the wall, when you know you are faced with a temptation and you do not feel strong enough to face it, the only way to look is up. And that's exactly what it does. And John Bunyan is right at this point. Oh, it's true, temptation can be a devastating, it can be a shattering experience. All of us can testify to that, some more than others. Some of us have been tempted, perhaps more than other people, and we know the depths to which temptation can send you. And yet the Lord, sometimes I'm convinced, sends it and uses it in our lives to further our best interests. The important thing is to learn whatever lessons God has for us in any temptation that he allows to come our way. And I think one of those lessons is that once God has helped us to survive any temptation, we should never fall prey to it the second time. We should have learned our lesson. If once something has knocked us down for the count, and God raises us up again by His marvelous grace, we should never, never, never be guilty of falling prey to that thing a second time. Oh, it's possible, it may happen, obviously, but it should be a lesson learned. There's an old proverb that says, most people who escape from one temptation, unfortunately, leave a forwarding address. (laughs) Think about that for a few moments, and it does happen, you know. It's one of the things we have to guard against because this only involves further trouble. And learning God's lessons means that we avoid any further temptations in that same vein. Oh, there are many others. There are plenty of other temptations, but we should not be foolish enough to fall prey to the same thing once again. We should be on our guard and we should realize the Holy Spirit is there to give us help. Would you hold your place here for a moment at Matthew's Gospel, we'll get back to that, and turn to 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians is the seventh book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter see, chapter 10, if you will. It's right after Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'd like you to look, if you will, at verse 13. Chapter 10 and verse 13. Here Paul warns Christians never to become overconfident of their ability to conquer temptations. You know, we have a tendency to do this at times. We think that temptations are a pushover that we can easily conquer them. And something comes along, oh, I'll never fall for that. I'll never yield to that temptation. Next thing you know, you're down flat on the ground. And so in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul says, first of all, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. The very moment you think you are standing firm and that you can really take care of that temptation, that's the moment in which While you're looking at the temptation here, Satan sneaks up behind you and trips you up and down you go. Very easy to happen. But then look at verse 13. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Underline that. That is the heart of it right there. God is faithful. In fact, if you go through a good concordance, look up the word faithful you'll find there are at least five or six or seven of these statements throughout the New Testament. God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. Every one of them gives you a tremendous lesson that we need to learn about the way God is faithful in various aspects of our living. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What a tremendous guarantee this is, that God will never allow any of His redeemed ones to be faced with temptations that are too big for them to endure. Now remember, this is only written to Christians. It has nothing to do with the unconverted person. The epistles are written to God's people, the redeemed. And this is written to you, to me. There will never be any temptation that is too great for you to endure. Because you see, God knows our breaking point. You and I may not. We may think we do. We may think we may know how strong we are. That's why verse 12 is written in here, to be careful that you don't think you can stand when you're liable to fall. But God knows the breaking point of every one of us and he always calls a halt before the temptation reaches that breaking point. Do you realize what this is saying? It is actually saying that all of our temptations are tailor-made for every one of us. They're made to order for us. That's exactly what this says. Never think that the temptations of life come at random that they're haphazard, that they come by chance. There is no such thing as chance when you realize that we have a sovereign God who is in absolute control of every last detail of the universe. Now, if our God were careless, if he were not all-powerful, then anything could happen. But if he is in absolute control of all things and specially concerned about those who are his own, then absolutely nothing can happen unless God allows it to happen to us. You remember in the first two chapters of the book of Job, as I have alluded to them on many occasions, you have the story of Job, poor fellow that he was, Satan trying to get permission to reach out and and touch the life of Job, to tempt him. But I want you to remember that Satan had to ask for permission before he could get to Job. That's why you have those two chapters there, so that we're suddenly taken behind the scenes and we see a picture of Satan asking for permission and God giving him permission to touch Job but saying, Now wait. You can go just so far and no farther. That's a very important factor for us to keep in mind, because the temptations, as I say, were tailor-made to fit Job just as all your temptations and my temptations are made to order for us. And when Job had almost, not quite, but almost had reached the breaking point, suddenly in chapter 38 you discover that God comes thundering out and bringing down the curtain on the temptation act as far as Job is concerned, and all of a sudden things take a turn for the better. And he do the same thing for all of us. He's promised to. No testing time, no temptation has come to us, but such as is common to all, and God is faithful. And that's exactly what we find. Turn quickly, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and uh, page 167 in the Harmony, for those of you who are using the Harmony, Luke 22 and verse uh, oh 31. Here we find a very similar situation in which Satan asked Jesus for permission to tempt the apostle Peter, and once again the temptation was tailor-made. It was cut to fit, made to order for Peter's makeup. Look at chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus speaking to the Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith might not eclipse or be eclipsed. And when you have returned to me, when you have repented, strengthen your brothers." Now, this is a temptation I've already talked about. When Peter was warming his hands in the fire in the courtyard by the praetorium, Jesus knew exactly how much Peter could take. And then he ordered Satan to call a halt, and the temptation ceased. But in addition, notice that Jesus said one additional thing. He said, I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail, will not be eclipsed. There was a temporary eclipse, but not a permanent one. There was a temporary shutdown, as it were, but Peter came back. He made a comeback again because the faith was not completely failing or eclipsing. And the Greek word is eclipse here, and that's why I use that term. Now, isn't it a strong encouragement to you, to me, As we read something like this and we realize that that same identical power is available to you and to me every single day of our lives, and that the same Lord prays for you and for me as he prayed for Peter concerning our temptations as we have to face them in the course of life. All right, now back to Matthew, our text once again, Matthew 6, and let's see the way the petition is really worded. Page 46 in the Harmony, Matthew chapter 6, and let's look at verse 13 once again. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil or the evil one. I don't know whether that bothers you at all. It does bother a lot of people because it says, lead us. Remember, this is addressed to God. And it says, God, or Father, lead us not into temptation. There is something sinister about one person tempting another person, about temptation as a whole. And it's difficult to imagine God having any part in leading or bringing anyone into temptation. And yet Jesus said very plainly, that's what you and I are to pray. He says we're to pray to the heavenly Father and say, Father, do not lead me or us into temptation. Now, for some people, that's a bit much to accept. And so many of the translations have attempted to soften it a little bit. You'll find one translation says, do not subject us to temptation. Another one says, let us not be subjected to temptation. Another one says, let us not be led into temptation. Bring us not into temptation. Do not test us and so on. But no matter how you phrase the petition, the facts remain. Because what this really says, you are deliberately asking God not to have any part in your temptation. Soften this as you will try as you will, the text still bluntly means that God does share some responsibility for our temptations. Because after all, he is absolutely sovereign, as we've said, he's in control of all things, nothing happens without his permission, and if he did not want us to be tempted, he could call a halt before the temptations even start. He could, there's no question about it. So I think the clue to the dilemma is the word temptation, and that's what we have to look at for a moment. The Greek word is perosmos and it means an examination. It means a, a being put to a test. It means a trial or a temptation. In, the, in itself, the word temptation does not necessarily have any good or, or evil connotations. It's what we call an amoral word. It's neither good nor evil. Temptation is a word that does not have, unfortunately for us, we think of it as bad. But it doesn't have to be bad because in its original form it doesn't necessarily mean a bad factor at all. For example, Take the Old Testament and turn back to Genesis chapter 22, if you will, the first book of the Bible, the 22nd chapter, the story of Abraham when he was called upon by God to take his only son, Isaac, the son he had waited for for so many years, as the child of promise, upon whom all of the promises rested. And God suddenly said, take this child, take him off to Mount Moriah and execute him, put him to death. It's a terrible thing for a father to be asked to do, and I want you to notice the way this chapter opens. Genesis 22 in the first verse. Sometime later, God tempted Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he replied, here am I, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the region of Mount Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, most of the modern translations render it, God tested Abraham simply because it sounds so terrible to say that God tempted Abraham. But if you're using a King James version, this is right when it says God did tempt Abraham. That's exactly what the word is. The Hebrew word is the word nisah, and it means to tempt, it means to put to a test. It means exactly what the Greek word means that's found in the text in Matthew chapter 6. It means to tempt. Now, we simply cannot imagine a holy God ordering Abraham to do anything that would be sinful. We can't imagine that. And as the story reads odd, obviously, he did not order him to do anything that was sinful. He stepped in before the thing really took pass, came to pass, or took place. But you can still call it a temptation, and thus the King James Version is right when it renders it this way, because it is a temptation which has good in view. And what I'm trying to say is that the Greek word for temptation, is a word that can either be good or evil depending upon the circumstances, depending upon what goes round about with it. And so the word itself is not a bad word. We have made it bad, unfortunately, and that's where I think we've missed one of the most important points. All God's temptations, and they are many, are ultimately good in view. However unpleasant they may be at the moment, God has our ultimate good in view when he does tempt us. When a temptation has evil in view, ah, that cannot come from a good holy God, that must be ascribed to Satan. Although, as we have already seen, God can even use Satan's temptations for his own good purposes. You see, because he's sovereign. He can overrule Satan in anything that he does, whenever it pleases him to do so. Because of the inadequacies of our language, and this is true not only in English, it's true of many languages, translators have used the term test or trial for the good things that happen, the good temptations, if you want to call them that, and those that come from God, whereas when they come from the devil, we say, oh, they're temptations. But this is really batting verbal words around, ideas around. It's a sort of an artificial distinction, because temptation and testing are the same thing. They're really not that far apart, and both of them are the translation of the same Greek word. I think I can show you something more. If you look at the book of James for a moment, The book of James, which is the eighth book from the end of the Bible, comes just before 1 Peter, James chapter 1. James is a very practical writer. I I love the book of James because he comes right down where we live as human beings. He tells it like it is, says some things that need to be said, and he says them in a very clear-cut fashion, sometimes even rather roughly, but we need to have it said this way. He opens his book up by saying something that sounds very ridiculous to many of us. It says, count it all joy. In fact, the translation I'm using says, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face temptations of many kinds. Count it joy when temptations come. Now, that's a little bit much also. That is, when something goes wrong and you're tempted to do something, good or bad, when there's a trial or a testing time, if you please, of any kind that comes into your life, what do you do? Jump up and down with joy? Put on the Hallelujah Chorus record and play it? Hardly. 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 Because everything seems to be going wrong, we grumble, we complain, we gripe. But James says, count it pure joy when you face the temptations of life. Why? Because the temptations will deepen your faith. They will develop perseverance. But I want you to look down to verse uh, 13. This is the key verse that I'd like you to look at. He says, when you are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Get this, and I'll explain this in a moment. "...because God cannot be tempted by evil..." There's your clue. "...nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed." And I'll develop that in a moment as well. Look again at the 13th verse. "...let no one say when he is tempted..." And that's the word, perasmos. "...let no one say when temptations come..." God is doing it because God cannot be tempted by evil." When evil temptations come, when something comes, like say a temptation comes to go and rob a bank, to go out and stab your next door neighbor, to uh, go out and drop a pail of water on somebody who's walking under your window or something like this. When something evil comes along, don't say, God, you made me do it. It just doesn't work that way. This is the evil connotation. That's why the word evil is found in there. And here's the distinction you see. God can tempt, as we saw in his temptation of Abraham to take his son Isaac. But you see, God can intervene in these things when they seem to be like that. God can tempt, but he can never tempt someone to do and to go through with something that will lead into evil, because that would run completely against everything that God is and everything that God stands for, you see. So temptation to do good is that which comes from God. It's legitimate. Temptation to do evil is that which comes from the devil, and it's wrong. I think a simple illustration might show you what I mean. Let's say here are parents of a talented youngster. He has musical ability. He's taking trumpet lessons. He's learning to play the trumpet, and like most boys, he hates to practice. He despises the hours that he has to put into practice. He'd much rather be outside playing baseball, basketball, football, or whatever that may be. And so sometimes his parents have to tempt him in order to get him to practice. They offer him something that he likes very much in order to get him to come in and spend the hours and practice. This is temptation to do good, and it is perfectly legitimate. In fact, some of the great musicians will tell you that their parents had to do all kinds of things to get them to practice when they were young. And I would say there's nothing wrong with saying this is a temptation to do good. Temptation is a test. It is an amoral thing in itself. It can be good or it can be bad, depending on the circumstances. Job in the Old Testament said, God, when you have tempted me, I will come forth as gold. We find that Paul wrote, tempt yourself or submit to temptation to see if you really have the faith, if you're really holding on to the faith. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, we're told of the queen of Sheba. She heard about Solomon's wisdom and it says she came on a royal visit in order to tempt him with difficult questions. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses said the Lord your God is tempting you to see if you love him and if you really love him with all your heart and your soul. So, what I'm saying is God may very well put a person in the situation as a test or a temptation for ultimate good. The person may fall for the time being, yes, as Peter did while he was warming his hands by the fire, you see. But he doesn't need to fall. There was no need for Peter to say, I don't even know this Jesus. He could have stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was put in a situation where either one of these things could have happened. And yet, out of the situation, the person may emerge stronger spiritually. I think Adam and Eve are the classic example of this. God put them in the midst of a very vulnerable situation in the Garden of Eden. There was no reason for them to sin. There was no reason for them to yield to to Satan's uh, 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 appeal to them. But they did nonetheless, and God already knew that they would, and he had already planned in advance for their redemption. And many are the lessons that you and I can learn from a story like that about God, about Adam and Eve, about ourselves, and even about Satan as a result of this. See, in all of this, we must remember that our God is sovereign. He does what He wants to do, and He always does that which is ultimately for our ultimate good, however bad it might seem at the moment. What He does, He does with a good purpose. To us, it may seem horrible at the moment because we are creatures of dust because we do not understand the divine mind, because we are not on that infinite level, we're finite beings. But nothing ever happens, and I think we must settle our minds on this, nothing ever happens without his approval and his direction. And there you have that directive and permissive will concept that I dealt with two weeks back. So it is entirely correct to say God sends temptation with the understanding that Satan, when he bears the temptation, asking permission from God, getting that permission, doing what he wants to do, he still has to get God's approval before he does his nefarious work. So the prayer that we have here is a legitimate one. Father, lead us not into temptation. But, and this is perhaps the most important part of what I want to say tonight, the second half of that is very important. Go back to Matthew 6, if you will. Look at the second half of the petition. It says, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. That word, but, is a special word in Greek, it's the word Allah, and it means except, except, or unless. So what we're really praying is, Father, if we must be tempted, then your will be done. But do not lead us into the temptation unless you're also going to lead us out on the other side victoriously. That's what we're really saying, you see. Quickly go back now to the final passage in James, where we were a few moments ago, the book of James, chapter 1. I'd like to close the study with just a commentary or two on, on the obstetri- obstetrics lesson that he gives to us here. A very interesting story. You can miss it very easily unless you study it carefully. He gives us a very important lesson in obstetrics, and we're told how temptation develops into sin, and we're also given a clue as to how to stop it from getting that far. James 1, verse 14 and 15. Every one of us is tempted when, by his own evil desire, He is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now here's the procedure. Temptation stands on the outside of us. Whatever form the temptation may take, and it can take any kind of a form. Temptation stands on the outside of us and makes an appeal to us from outside. It appeals to something within us. That something within us is the, what's called here, the evil desire. So we have temptation on the outside appealing to the desire on the inside, and the appeal can be extremely great. It can be very strong. But sin has not yet taken place just because we're being tempted, because there's nothing wrong with temptation. Temptation is not a sin. It's yielding to evil temptation that constitutes the sin. Temptation is simply an amoral factor, you see, until we react wrongly to it and we do what is wrong, that's when the sin takes place. So, you have the picture, outside is temptation appealing to the desire which is inside. Now, verse 15 says the inner desire submits, it gives in to the temptation. So, at that point you have conception taking place in the spiritual imagery that he's using, and desire gives birth to sin, as he describes it here desire gives birth to sin. Then you have the second generation. Sin grows up, has a child of its own, and it's named death. And what James is saying is that death is the grandson of desire. It's quite an interesting picture when you analyze it this way. And this is the mechanics of what sin is all about, as James painted for us using the imagery of human birth and obstetrics. You have, again, temptation outside attracting desire within, desire Conceives, gives birth to sin, sin grows up and gives birth to death. It's a a terrible, ugly family tree. And if you ask what desire is, very simple, it's you and myself saying, I want my way. That's what desire is. It's myself or you saying in response to the temptation that comes, saying, I want my way. I want that. My will be done. Not God's will, but my will. Now let's re-examine that very briefly as we close. And I want you to see that there is a way out of this predicament. Again, you have temptation making its appeal from outside. Our natural desire is to say, yes, and go along with the temptation. I want, I will. But let's say that instead of saying that, we submit to God instead of submitting to temptation. We cry out, no, not my will, but Lord, your will be done. What happens? Well, you have a spiritual miscarriage. Using James's birth analogy here, sin is aborted, Temptation has been thwarted. The whole thing has not come to anything at all simply because we have done what God has told us to do. We have yielded to him instead of yielding to Satan. Now, that's the significance of Jesus' prayer also when he says, do not lead us into temptation unless you are going to bring us out victoriously on the other side. And he will. He will every time because don't forget, in the true Lord's Prayer, The one that you find in John chapter 17, you find there that Jesus prayed for you and for me. And this is what he said. Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them against the evil one. And he's praying that prayer constantly for you and for me. And so long as this is happening and so long as we are aware of it and so long as we act upon this and depend upon this and utilize that power that is available to us, we will never need to fall into the temptation's grips because God has given us the way out. And this brings to an end the studies on the Lord's Prayer. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father, you allow many things in our lives that we do not like, and yet they always have a very important purpose that we might might not know anything at all about. There are some things that we shall never understand this side of glory, and yet we trust you and we realize that as we put our trust in you and put our hand in your hand and walk with you in faith, believing where we cannot see, where we cannot understand, and that's all you ask of us, to trust you, that you will always lead us into those pathways of your choosing. Sometimes the going is rough and purposely so in order that we might be stronger as a result of it. But always we know, even when we're going through those rough times, you walk by our side. You're never far off. You're always near and you always understand. You know our frame, you know that we are but dust and that we're very weak and we depend upon your strength. And so you have said that your strength is made perfect in our weakness and we depend upon you for that. Help us, our Father, to realize that the temptations of life may be very, very rough at times, but greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. And you have conquered the evil one. You have given us victory by virtue of your Son's death, resurrection, and ascension to your right hand. We trust you, we rely upon you, and we ask only for the grace to face those things that come our way and the knowledge that you will never lead us astray. Hear us, we pray, and may these studies, as we have been going over them over these past weeks, have encouraged us and strengthened us that the prayer and prayer as a whole might mean more to us. For you are our Lord, our Heavenly Father, and we love you. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Herbert Henry Ehrenstein. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.